This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everybody should have the right to choose. They have the right to pleasure and the right to choose pleasure. I believe that the stories we tell define us. And then gradually, I came to realize that we never tell stories of a woman's right to her own body. When I was growing up, we were told that, yes, women have sex, but if you enjoy sex, it means you're slutty. And this is not necessarily just an Indian narrative. No, not This at is all. very much the European narrative as well. You mm. know, that whole puritanical identity. We didn't grow up learning anything about the Kama Sutra. I had no idea what the book was about. As far as I was concerned, it's what the world thinks. It's a book about positions. When you start to study it, you realize just how much has been silenced when it comes to the narrative of women and women's pleasure. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Millennial Mind. Today, I'm recording a podcast with the one and only Seema Anand, who is so inspiring, so empowering, and shares so many incredible stories with us and busts so many myths that so many of us have around sex and pleasure. This is an uncomfortable conversation for me to have, but I think it's one that we really need to unpack, unlearn, and really try to see things in a different light. Wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you could press the follow, like, and subscribe button. It would really mean the world to me. So strap in and get ready for this uncomfortable conversation. Please well, help me welcome my next guest. Seema. I feel like I should call you Seema Auntie. I don't know. I feel disrespectful <laughs> saying that, but welcome to Millennial Mind. Thank you so much for having me, Shivani. And go ahead and call me whatever makes you comfortable. I don't Aww. have any issues with that. Well, thank you so much happy for Happy to be here. your auntie. <laughs> I love it. But um, I'm really happy that you're here because this is a topic that I think needs to be spoken more about, uh, not just in our Indian community, but generally in society, because I think so many of us shy away from female pleasure. I want to start from the beginning because last year you were named the top content creator for sexual health. And I want to know how you got there. Where did the journey begin? When did you first start talking about sexual health? When did you first start understanding about it all? So, okay, for me, it actually started a very long time ago with, as you probably know, I'm a storyteller. Yeah. I work with stories. I believe that the stories we tell define us. In every culture, we tell stories of what we expect um the role of a person to be. So, for instance, you tell a story about how a man comes home drunk and he beats up his wife, but she's so good. She's such a good woman. She never says anything. She's never dishonored him outside. You've now created this role for the good woman, the one who doesn't say anything, the woman who opens her mouth and says, I'm going to slap you right back. 
is the bad person. Yes. And so for me, stories are extraordinarily important. They're the most powerful tool of influence. So I've always worked with stories. And then gradually, I came to understand that I came to realize that we never tell stories of a woman's right to her own body. Her body, her pleasure is somebody else's property. Mm. And if you've heard stories from, let's say, um, the ancient Indian stories or from any other culture, they all seem to talk along these terms of how the woman belongs. She's, she's property. She needs permission. And so I went off to look for what are the stories that we had silenced. Um, we wrote the Kam Sutra. There must have been some stories where women <laughs> had access to their own <clears throat> bodies. So I went off to look for that. And initially, because... As with everybody, even today, we we didn't grow up learning anything about the Kam Sutra. I had no idea what the book was about. As far as I was concerned, it's what the world thinks. It's a book about positions. And so I thought, okay, let me take a look at it, maybe do a paper, 5,000 words, move on. That was about 23 years ago. My gosh. I have just gotten deeper and deeper and deeper into the subject because when you start to study it, you realize just how much has been silenced when it comes to the narrative of women and women's pleasure. And so here I am digging it up one little syllable at a time. (laughs) So many questions. First of all, what were you doing that prompted you to dig deeper into that when you said you were going to write a paper on it? What were you doing at the time? I'm literally just, as I said, looking at women's narratives, how we create stories, how we create identity for women. And um, typically, I mean, I grew up um, in post-colonial India, So in university, uh, at school, the books that we studied, we never studied any Indian literature. In my time in India, you weren't taught any Indian literature. I think even now there's just maybe one or two specific texts taught, nothing really of any import. Um, So I started with the Greco-Roman mythologies. I started with the European stories. After I came to live in the UK... I started to study the Indian literatures because there's a lot more people here teaching it. Right. Um, So at Oxford and so on, I got myself a couple of teachers. I started to study it. And that's when I realized that no matter what culture you go into, these stories were specifically missing. And I had got to that point, maybe even in my life, I'd got to that point where I'm wondering, it sort of glaringly stares at you that... Every time I read a story, why is this one particular thing missing? You know, some years ago, I, and this might have been the turning point. I really can't remember when this switch happened. But um, I was doing an event for Afghani stories. Okay. So there was a lot of work being put into Afghanistan. This is with all the issues around the Taliban, etc. And there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of money being pumped into the Afghan foundations here in the UK. And people were um, wanting to do events, talking about, you know, stories from there. And I didn't know any traditional Afghan stories. Mm. So the people I was doing this event for sent me two or three books. And I I went through these stories. Shivani, it was horrible. Every single story started with the fact that there was this man and he's married to this woman who's very, very beautiful. And somewhere along the way, if she's beautiful, she's going to cheat on you. And in the end, she has to be punished. And 
every story by the end of it, I remember feeling so depressed. I remember actually needing to go and get help from the doctor because I was so distressed from three big, thick versions of these stories. My gosh. And I think at this point I decided I, I can't take this anymore. I need to understand what it is that's been that's been changed because at the time that I was growing up, this was definitely the narrative. You know, women um, have to behave a certain way. When we, when I was growing up, we were told that yes, women have sex, but the ones who enjoy it are the fast girls. That was the the term for you when you know you're like a slut. So yes, you have to have sex in order to have children, but if you enjoy sex, it means you're slutty. So, you know, we come from such, a, and this is not necessarily just an Indian narrative. No, not this at all. This is very much the European narrative as well. You mm. know, that whole puritanical identity. Yes. And as a woman, you are the, you are worthwhile if you are chaste. For sure. And if you're chaste, you have power. Yes, I mean, we have plenty of stories from ancient India that talk about, you know, the chaste woman with so much power. And then one day she looks at a man and she doesn't do anything. She just looks at him and her chastity is gone and her power is gone. I, I mean, it's just like... It's outrageous. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want to be chaste. I'm, I'm okay with not being chaste. And over time, you unpick this narrative. So I realized over a period of time, this is a far more recent discovery have you noticed how a woman, at least within the Indian um, cultural narrative, before you have your periods, you're like the goddess, you're Devi. Okay. Yeah. So you're worshipped. Mm -hmm. There are all these, um, you know, the Navratri and the uh, Kanjka, etc., which is where, you know, this is before you have your periods. You're pure. Okay. Once you've finished with your periods, you're once again pure. But that time... When you have your periods, that time when a woman is at her most powerful, she's at her most productive, she's amazing, she's fabulous, she can do anything in the world. You're told this is the time that you are absolutely the worst because, you know, yeah, you have periods. But are you the most productive? Are you the most fabulous? Me, I still am. Okay, I've just decided that I am. Oh, you decided that you are. I'm like, okay. Because no, a lot of people suffer, like, have a very bad period pains and it's crippling and they can't do anything. No, no, I'm not talking about the fact that during your period... Oh, uh, sorry. I'm talking about... <laughs> it's like during the seven days. I was like, ah. <laughs> No, no, I'm talking about the time oh, from see. where your periods start to when your periods finish. That, that, that 40-odd years. Right. Or 30 years. Of, not the seven days. <laughs> no, not the seven days. Um, during yes. that period of time. We're all the most fabulous. We are fabulous. We are productive. <clears throat> we can do anything. Yes. But that's what we're told, that, oh, you have periods. You know, this is the time that you're not worthy of worship. You're not good. Let's unpack that because I actually, in my first podcast when I did with Mira Manic, I actually unpacked this and I said, I was I was so annoyed by this growing up that the first podcast I ever did for a millennial mind, I raised the fact that I think it's ridiculous that when you're in your period, you cannot go to the temple. Now, in the olden days, from what I understand, the reason why you weren't allowed to go to the temple, you weren't allowed in the kitchen, you weren't allowed to pray was because we didn't have the correct sanitary tools to support us to do these things. That's why women weren't allowed to work. Now, in in the current modern day, we have correct sanitation processes and we have the right tools to support us so that for people like me, I don't get very bad period pain. 
if I'm I have, if I'm okay, I can come to work. I can go to the temple if I want to. What are your thoughts on this? Because some people have very polarizing views that you're dirty and you shouldn't go. Yeah. So I think that this became again, like I said, things shift very easily from a story that you're telling. Uh, you lose the point of the story and it becomes your narrative. And I grew up in a household where this wasn't a thing. Okay. My grandparents, my parents, nobody believed in this. I didn't know it was a thing till I was really grown up. And fortunately, my in-laws didn't have that issue either. So this never came into my life till wow. much, much later. You know, when I heard other people say, um, talk about how, oh, I'm on my period. I won't be able to come to this puja. I was like, why not? <laughs> and you should hear the, the reasons that people put forward. I mean, it's ridiculous. What are they? Um, you know, everything from, I actually heard this one lady talk about how, well, you know, you can't because when you're on your period, your power is so intense that you become more powerful than God himself. Hence, you cannot go over there because you would change the energy of the temple. It's like, Okay. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you haven't heard this woman. She was so popular in India f about four years ago. It's just unbelievable. That is so funny. And for me, I think, you know, I have a very dear friend who uh, is professor of feminism at JNU in Delhi. Okay. And she's the most incredible female um, that I know. And she's in her book writes this very interesting little analogy on how... As time goes on, every narrative changes. Mm. Now, if you want the narrative to stay the same, you have to work very hard at keeping it like that. So she says it's like wearing nude makeup, you know, where you put on lots and lots of makeup to look like you haven't done anything at all. <laughs> it's like that. This is the machinery that works um, underground almost, you know. It's mm. like because... As you learn more, as you understand more, you are going to start thinking differently. So how do you control and contain people's thought processes? Yeah. There are lots of different ways. And I think for me, the most important way is the story that we tell. The stories that you tell literally define you. And if you want to create change, the only way of creating change is by changing those stories. I love that. So, so if you powerful. keep the story same. Mm. nothing changes you can make all the laws in the universe nothing will change till that story changes on the ground nothing so will change powerful. till that story changes on the ground so powerful I mean it's so interesting that you were saying growing up you had heard of the Kama Sutra I heard about the Kama Sutra when I was researching for this podcast oh, really? I had known I had known the word I had no idea what it was I don't know what it is. Is it? And, and when I was listening to you on another podcast, I heard you telling the story about how it's not just a book about positions and how it has seven chapters and there's so many different things to it. But I was never told about it. I was never talked about. It was never talked about. And sex isn't something that is talked about in my family. You know, um, it's just not a conversation that anybody has with you. And I think that that's the same for so many people within their own families, whether they're Indian or not. I don't think it's a open and comfortable topic. And I think there's so much right now and to relate back to what you said in the beginning about women enjoying. Um, there's a figure online, I'm not going to say his name, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, <laughs> who says that women who have a high body count are disgusting and that he would never 
you know, go near them to marry. And interestingly enough, there's this narrative, and some people root it back to historic artifacts and stories, that men are allowed to have multiple wives. You know, people say Krishna had a lot of gopis in Hinduism. Um, in Islam, I know people are allowed to marry three or four times. And a lot of people say that men are allowed to have multiple partners and mistresses, and women are not. And that is the reason why women should not have multiple partners before they get married. What are your thoughts? So um, the person who should remain nameless, I would love it if you became nameless for always. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, I get this um, all the time from so one of the popular phrases in India at the moment is no seal, no deal. And these are very, very obnoxious men saying, basically referring to the hymen as a seal. And if you don't have a seal, you don't have a deal. And I have a lot of women writing in and saying, how do we counter this? And frankly, my point is, do you want one of those people? Would you want to be with one of those people? Even if you are a virgin, would you want to be with one of those people? Never. Hence, you move on. There are normal people in this world as well. <laughs> so you just have to say, well, okay, you hang on to your deal. I don't want you. I don't think you're a good deal. And you move on. And the thing is that it is about control. It's always been about control. If you want to keep somebody within a certain box, you create taboos. You create rules. That's the only way to do it. Now, this has been done in lots of different ways. So um, there is a period of time in European history called the fantasy act which is the end of the 1800s. So literally it means the end of the century, okay. Fade Siecle. And um, in Fade Siecle, the idea which is being put forward by a lot of scholars is that this was, um, so it's ref it, the term refers to an artistic movement where it was music, writing, sculpture, painting, etc. that all comes under this um, one particular movement of one particular type of thought. Okay. And a lot of scholars call this the most misogynistic period of um, art. And the reason being, we're told, this is one of the theories, but I like it. Um, it says that this is the time when the Industrial Revolution has started to take place. And the people here in Europe, particularly, are realizing that you know, till now it had been that if you're born an aristocrat, you live as, as an aristocrat. If you're born a serf, you know, one of the lower classes, you stay a lower class person. But this is where people realize that there's a way of making money. And if you can make money, you can improve your lifestyle. You can improve your quality of life. You can change your status. Yes. So they're setting out to earn money. But then they're told that... If you go, and this is a very religious area, you have to remember Europe, the UK, etc. You know, th th yeah. this is a hugely sort of church-going public. Lying and cheating is seen as a sin. You, however, if you are going out into the world to make money, you are going to have to lie. You are going to have to be slightly dishonest. You're going to have to bend the truth, even if not lie. Okay, in commerce and science and in in finance, things. Mm -hmm. need to be shifted a little bit from um, the straight and narrow. And so what are you going to do? You'll end up in hell. And so they're told, ah, but your wife could be pure enough for the two of you. Wait for it. So it's like 
she could be so virtuous that she can actually make sure that your soul is not condemned to hell. And so women are offered this pedestal. You can be powerful enough. If you can become so chaste and so virtuous, you can save your husband from the devil himself. Wouldn't you want that kind of power? And, you know, the women clambered over each other to get onto that pedestal. It was, you you can either beat people into that submission, you can encourage them to make it aspirational, you can do whatever you want. But somehow, I mean, every time I look at history, this is all they're ever trying to do is trying to get women into this box because it's just easier to control them. And put women against each other, which is yeah. what we see in society, yeah. to chase over a man's attention. Absolutely. When do you ever see two men fighting over each, with each other for a woman? Rarely it happens, I'm sure. Really? But, but yeah, you hear more <laughs> stories in the on, on movies, and you hear more stories in literature because about two women, two women being because women fighting. had absolutely no other status. All they had was their home, and it was a case of fighting with each other to get um, command of that space. I mean, when men do that in the office space, they're they're wonderful. They're heroes. They're wow. innovative. They're yes. ambitious. Yay! And if a woman does that, of course, it's bad. But yeah, you're right. So women were pitted against each other. There were women trying to be, you know, this whole idea of if you stay um, in the house mm-hmm. and you are virtuous, of course, but you, of course, if you also don't do any work, that was your way of showing that your husband was so wealthy. You know, this is again at a time before your yes. um, computers are there. You can't do a background check if a man comes to you to a bank for a loan. How does, he, how does the banker figure out how wealthy he is? Well, there's the wife who's never having to do anything at all. And so, you know, all of these ideas, well, if you don't do anything, if you just sit around and look beautiful, you are wealthier than her because that means your husband is richer. Do you see what I mean? Yes. You and see that's how changed they- a lot, I think, in our times because I still see that with the older generation, by the way. It's so interesting. Yeah. I think my parents' generation... And, you know, the generation above them are very much like, I don't work. I'm very chill. Like, my life is great. And if someone in our generation said that, it's like you're labeled lazy and a loser because productivity is everything, you know. And it's so interesting how that narrative changes. And I think it's also, um, okay. I think maybe now it's also the fact that women do want their independence, thank heavens, and they have the ability to get it. I mean, for both, but men and women, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. But I was just going to say there are still plenty of other women who, if let's say a girl, a woman, a young lady says, I don't want to work, there are other women who will put her down, unfortunately. For sure. But I remember this happening to me. I remember being at this um, lunch and there was this woman sitting next to me and we talked about different things. And then I said to her, I said, so what do you do? I mean, it's like, and she looked at me and she was like, no, my husband is very rich. I don't have to work. And she actually said this to me. I mean, and I, I no. was like, okay. And, and she was so like, she looked down at me because I'd just been talking about my work. And I was like, yeah, my husband is very rich. I don't have to work. And I was like, it's actually a thing. Because I'd never... Heard anyone say it it. in so many words? My goodness. Well, actually, really interestingly, on what you just said, because there's so much I want to talk about, we're going to be here for like five hours. (laughs) Something you just said was about men and women trying to be the same. 
right? Um, you said if men do one thing, they're praised for it. And if women do one thing, they're insulted for it. I just uploaded a podcast with someone who's talking about boundaries. And we were talking about how if women are decisive, they're firm, they know what they want, they're criticized, men praised. And somebody commented saying, this generation is full of people, full of women who want to be the same as men. Okay, we don't want to be the same as men. You know, I keep thinking, how does one actually put this across so that it gets into people's heads? Um, the word feminism has been demonized because when we talk about equality, everybody's idea, you know, when it comes to themselves, they can be really nuanced. But for anybody else, it's like very basic. One equals one. And that means that if uh, equality means that if this is what a man is doing, then this is what the woman is doing. It's got to be equal. It's not quite like that. When women started fighting for their rights, while we're still fighting for our rights, you look at who has those rights? You know, that is what is the aspirational part. If you see that every time a girl, a young girl, a young woman wants to go out in the evening and she's told, no, you can't go out. Yes, your brother can go out because he's a boy, but you can't go out. Her aspiration is, well, I want to be able to go out, but you're still really young. You don't know how to articulate that. You're looking at that and th thinking, I want that. Not Correct. that I want to be a man. I want that same respect. I want the right to make the choice that I want to make. Exactly. And so equality is about having the same level of respect and the same dignity to be allowed to choose what you want to do. It's not that I want to be a man. No, God forbid, I do not wish to be a man. I'm very happy being a woman. And I hope to God that in my next life, I come back again as a woman. Yeah. But... I don't want to be limited mm. because I am a woman. Yes. Just like men shouldn't be limited. I mean, I say this all the time. I have two boys and I have a daughter. And uh, I love the conversations around my table when we have family dinner. Because I want all my children to be able to talk about everything, whether they're talking about skincare, mm -hmm. or whether they're talking about sport or whether they're talking about their jobs. And all my kids do. Mm. Um, you know, it's the same conversation, whether we're talking about periods or whether we're talking about, I don't know, something that impacts a man. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Equally. Maybe not quite nightfall. We don't really discuss yeah. nightfall at the dining table. But you know what I mean? Like, I just think that there shouldn't be this, this limitation on what we're allowed to do, that's the equality Absolutely. that we're fighting for. Because that's all we can see right now. I mean, if I have to compare it, am I going to go and compare it to the polar bears? Like, I want that particular freedom <laughs> that the polar bears have. No. I'm going to talk about what I see in society around me and so, say, that's what I want. Such a good way to debunk it all. You mentioned you have three children. When did you start talking around sexual health? Was it after you had them or before? I started working on sexual health and basically around pleasure. Okay. 
after all three kids were born. Okay. So um, they've actually grown up with me talking about it. And I often say that, um, you know, because I work at my dining table, I don't have a separate study. And my bookshelf is in the drawing room. So at all given times, the 20 versions of the Kam Sutra are on the dining table, on the shelves. They're never hidden away. They were, they were always out there um, for the kids to know that that's what I'm working on. Now, my idea behind this was, one, I'm not ashamed of the subject. I see no reason why anybody else should be. And I wanted them to grow up in a household where they felt that there was no taboo, stigma or shame mm. attached to the subject. It's a very normal thing. Um, I also have to say that, like, the kids come to all of my talks. Um, now, not so much since COVID because we've done fewer of them. But yes. whether it's a storytelling, whether it's a talk, whatever it is, the kids are always there front and center. They're my biggest cheerleaders. Wow. My first book was dedicated to them because everybody should have the right to choose. They have the right to pleasure and the right to choose pleasure if they want. Having said all that, um, what I do find very amusing is that, um, and they're very sort of like, they take it as like, yeah, okay, this is what mom does. Um, <laughs> the boys won't necessarily talk to me about it. Yeah. And if I say, well, you know, do you want to discuss it? They'll be like, ew, no, but they won't <laughs> talk to me about it. My daughter and I have a lot of conversations around emotions, around mm -hmm. how things feel, because I've always said that sex is far more than just um, two body parts coming together. It all starts here in the head. It's all about emotions. Okay. It's all about how you think, how you feel, um, what your brain is saying as opposed to what your body is saying. So my daughter is the one who actually started my social media platform. Wow. We'd never bothered with Instagram before COVID. No way. Well, because there wasn't any need for it. I was traveling. I was doing these things in person. So when did you start your Instagram account? Uh, so the Instagram account was started and then left. But basically, Tharani started this for me in June 2020. And you're on 1.3 million followers on Instagram already. Oh, I think divine grace. Um, no, Mad. really, it's just fortune, good fortune. Well, you create amazing content. I listen to all your stories all <laughs> the time. You. I was listening to one yesterday and it repeated twice because I was like, I need to listen to that again. That was so good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's really sweet. But um, what is funny, however, is having said um, that, you know, the kids are so mm. easy and comfortable with my work. They understand that this is what it is. Um, each one, whenever they've sort of started to go out with somebody, have had to sort of clear it with them. I mean, like literally they've said, do you know what my mother does? It's How been interesting. And I was thinking, this is so funny because it's normally the parents being like, okay, do you know what our daughter does? Or do you know what my son does? <laughs> Here's the, and, I, and I just, I always think it's so funny. Um, and my daughter-in-law says that when she and um, my son started to go out, and when the people in the office discovered who she was going out with, you know, it's like Siman and son, she said that it was like a month of serious teasing. Oh, my God, you're going out with her. So son. funny. And yeah, so it's people like... People must expect everyone to be an expert, which is a bit of pressure. But <laughs> it's a hell of a lot of pressure because... But yeah, yeah, you know, each time... Um, my daughter's sort of... Like, my daughter's going out with somebody who's really, really sweet, this lovely guy. But... 
you know, just in case the family is a little bit more conservative, like it's always this, do you know what my mother does? That was going to be my next question. Often in society, we have people who are accepting of the things that we do. And then we have people who are judgmental or perhaps, um, you know, don't have such a positive reaction to the things that we're doing, which are usually against the norm. And I think, you know, you're so well known and you've written an amazing book and, you know, everybody knows all of the incredible work that you do now. But when you're starting, it's a different story. Did you find that? Oh, God, yeah. Um, I've told this story often, but um, I lost friends over it. I was um, chucked out of social networks Mm. and groups. I got called a corporate call girl. I got called uh, all sorts of names. My kids got told horrible things about me. Yeah, I just got ostracized a lot. Um, my husband, who is um, he's a lot older than me, so he's almost eleven years older than I am, which makes him about seventy-two almost. He, bless him, has been a huge support, but is also a very typical Punjabi man of a certain age. Yes, I think he was pretty horrified, and so were many, many members of his family. The thing is, Shivani, I understand that not everybody's comfortable with it, but it is something I'd chosen to do. It was something I was going to be doing. And, you know, I didn't really think it was such a big deal when I first started to do it. I've only realized as time has gone past that people sort of have this reaction to it. Honestly, when I first started, I was more interested in just looking at the literature that we had forgotten. I have tears in my eyes because um, I I don't know why I'm emotional. I get really um, inspired when I see a woman that is so sure of herself. And just now when you said I had chosen to do it and you said it with, I don't know, like no, so got tears much in our grace. Eyes. And it just <laughs> it made me so like in awe of you because when do you hear a woman say he was unhappy? Other people were unhappy, but I chose to do it. And this is what I wanted to do. And I love it. And now we're both crying. I know. (laughs) But I really love that. I just love that so much. And I want to know, for people who are at home right now, who perhaps want to do something different, who want to, you know, go against the grain of their family, how do they find that confidence and that self-belief to know that this is something that they should do? Because like you said, you're saying it's God's grace. It's your fate. You are an incredible storyteller. You are meant to do this. And that's why you flourished and you thrived because you've allowed that space for yourself to do it. And I think so many of us in life choose to go down a different path and think, "Mm, I would love to do that, but I'm too scared. Hey, everyone. I'm really sorry to interrupt with the episode, but I really had to talk to you about my performance planner. Now, a lot of people said to me, Shivani, why don't you ever promote your own product? And I was like, actually, why don't I? So here we are talking around my performance planner that I made. I was tired of having a separate gratitude journal, reflection journal, and a to-do list. So I combined it all into one product. Now in my performance planner, you have a structured template which helps you identify the goals that you want, break them down, and then schedule them for every single week to ensure that you hit any goal. The left-hand side of the page is all around your performance at work, and the right-hand side of your page is all around your performance with your mind. So you're going to have a two-in-one product that's going to be able to help you plan your day, reflect on your day, and do your gratitude and your affirmations, and set your habits and track them 
all in one place. It's three months, it's completely undated, and at the moment, it's on sale on my website at www.myperformanceplanner.com. I really hope that you like the template. Let me know if you use it and tag me in your stories and I'll repost it. Back to the podcast. So I think what I'd like to say is that no matter what you do, you will be criticized for it. Mm -hmm. If you choose not to do this, no matter the tiniest thing, because at every given point, um, you know, before I started working on the erotic literatures, I guess I was always slightly different. I mean, I'm really not that... I'm not that keen on following a particular path. I was always just slightly outside of that box. Whether it was because I just did not enjoy cooking and I chose to get as many takeaways as possible. <laughs> when we were all younger, I would have parties at my house and I would have a lot of the women coming over, criticizing me for having gotten, uh, having ordered the food in rather than having cooked it. And I realized over time that there was absolutely never going to be something that I did that was going to make people say, we love you, you're amazing. Mm -hmm. They were always going to find some way of putting you down. Yes. And I also discovered that when I was younger, typically most of us have this, I wanted to fit in. I really wanted to be accepted. Mm. I wanted them to say, oh, isn't Seema wonderful? I really wanted that. And the more I wanted it, the nastier they got. And I can still remember, I, it doesn't bother me anymore, for years it did, I can still remember the really nasty um, years, you know, just being treated in a way that made you feel like shit. Yeah. They were doing it and they were succeeding. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody has some point at which they break. Unfortunately, my breaking point came earlier. Other yeah. people lived with that for a long time. So it is a case of um, saying, all right, I move on. I was very lucky. I had a handful, literally, I can count on my hand, three good friends who stood by me and supported me and said, yeah, that's fine. I'm your friend. I lost a lot of the others. Like I said, now they're trying to come back and of be friends Of course they with me. are. Of yeah. course they are. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. And I had all of this thing of, you know, um, so I used to be, I, I unfortunately... Uh, went through a really difficult time um, with depression and put on a lot of weight. So I kind of got to about 100 kilos in weight, okay. which was really bad for my body, yes. my knees, my hips. I had dislocated my hip. Um, but it was also really bad for me uh, mentally because I it was like a vicious cycle. You know, you feel a certain way, you let yourself go and you kind of pull yourself down and then like I said one day I got up and pulled myself together and said I'm doing what I like yeah. I'm going to go forward to the people which I, who I like I got out to exercise I fixed my hip um, and the next thing you know is you're happy and you look good mm. and I found myself looking good and then you find yourself the receiving end of a lot of attention mm. and then it was a whole different set of bitching because, oh, she's looking for attention. You know, so there was always something. And that's when you realize that actually, you know what, this is just never going yes. to stop. So, so true. So um, true. It's never easy. But if you can find two people to support you, um, just live your life. Because honestly, nobody out there is thinking, 
you are fantastic, no matter how much you try and appease them. And you know what the worst part of it was? That the lower I got, the more upset I got with my, their treatment of me, I took it out on my family. I was always angry with my kids. Mm. I was upset because I couldn't say anything to these people because I wanted to fit in with them. So I was coming back and getting annoyed with the kids. And this literally for me was a turnaround on one particular day where I was like, nope, enough. Yeah. And that was the day I decided that whatever my kids say, do or think, they come first. I have their back no matter what. My kids think I'm totally nuts. They will tell you I'm a mad mother. <laughs> Very difficult to control or understand. And I'm weird. But the one <laughs> thing that they all agree on, that I have their back no matter what. Nobody is allowed to criticize my kids and get away with it. Nobody's allowed to judge them. Sorry. I love it's that. not their business to judge my children. And screw you. I feel like you're only able to be in that position when you've created that boundary with yourself. Yeah, right? I think you have to get to that point of saying, I love me. Yes. And I love my kids. And everybody else comes after that. And you know, it's really funny. One of my closest friends who went through a divorce, uh, again, conservative family. And she said this to me one day, and I thought it was the biggest compliment. She said, yeah, but you don't understand what it felt like because I, when I got divorced, it really bothered me about what other people were saying about me. And you just don't care what people say about you. And I don't think she was giving it to me as a compliment, but I took it as a huge compliment because, yeah, I don't care. I don't care. Wow. But it took a long time, Shivani, to get there. That is so interesting. I would not take that as a compliment. Yeah, but you have but to. I should. Yeah. So true. There are many things. Sorry, I'm just going to. No. I know we'll probably have to get on with this thing. But I, I just want we'll to... probably have to talk about Karma Sutra in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you know, you were talking earlier about the Kama Sutra. Yes. So I just want to say this. You know, one of the things that comes in the most on my comment section, when people are trying to troll me, um, which means, oh, my God, this is a very experienced old hag. You know, you get this a lot. And I just want to say that, yes, I have a lot of experience. I mean, I get to 60 and I don't have experience. How pathetic would that be, right? But so I was just saying, I brought the Kama Sutra in because most people, when they say that, they think of experience just as sex. It's not just sex. The Kama Sutra has a chapter called the 64 skills. And the 64 skills, and most people think, are 64 different ways of having sex. It's not. It's not. The 64 skills include everything from singing and dancing and music to zoology to mineralogy to learning foreign languages to uh, playing musical instruments. I mean, all sorts of things. And the idea is that the more diverse you are as a person the more exciting you become. You become more attractive to other people. If you have just one thing to talk about in your life, you're going to be boring after a little while. But if you can talk on 10 different subjects, says the Kam Sutra, you become a desirable lover. Wow. Even if you are monogamously in one relationship, even to your own partner, you keep that relationship fresh and alive because you're exciting to be with. Okay, let's rewind. What is the Karma Sutra? We are in this 
midst of this now. We've got into the podcast. Uh, what is the Kama Sutra? So the Kama Sutra is a book that was written in about the fourth century. Okay. We don't have an exact date for it. We think it was written by a man called Vatsyayan, who was a sage. And uh, he says in his introduction that he hasn't written anything new. He has literally taken material written in books about a thousand years before, and he's copied and pasted the bits that he thinks are good, the bits okay. that he likes. He writes this book for privileged, rich men, because women at this point were not being taught how to read or write. So the book is written for men of wealth and status. The book is written in seven sections, and it's a book about how to live your best life. Mm. So it's not a book on positions, not a book on pleasure. It's not a book on sex. It's on how to live um, as a wealthy person, like socially, okay. what should you be doing? So section one is on how to build your house, how to decorate your house, how many rooms there should be, how many bedrooms there should be. You should have a bedroom for your mistress and a bedroom at the back of the house for your wife. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Sorry, I just want to pause you. So yeah. is it acceptable then to have a mistress? Well, this is at the time that this is written. Um, I should also point out that this is a courtly society. Courtesans were de rigueur. I mean, everybody had mistresses, somebody yeah. that they would have had. Plus, they talk about, Vatsyayan's Kama Sutra talks about the man and the woman, when it talks, it's a treatise. It's not a book about emotions. It's a book about um, literally a treatise on how you should be living. Got it. It says this is what the man must do. This is what the woman must do. By the time we get to the 13th century translations of the Kam Sutra, they're talking about husband and wife. So society has changed. But in the 4th century Kam Sutra, we're talking about the fact that, yes, a man would have had mistresses. He would have had maybe a mistress, maybe several. Um, the, the first section tells you how many hours he would have had to spend on his toilets, you know, his his mm. bathing, his massages, his perfuming, etc. So that's section one. How many uh, hours he should spend talking to his minor birds, etc. It's all listed out there. So that's section one. Section two is on pleasure. It's the only section that I think is relevant today. Section three is on how to look for the perfect wife. Because mm -hmm. again, here is a man who's going to be looking for the perfect wife. Yeah. I know people love quoting this section because there are some bits in there that you really don't like the sound of. Remind yourself, it's a book written 2000 years ago. I mean, there are books today and people who shall remain <laughs> nameless today who are politically so incorrect. You're going to get things from 2000 years yes. ago, which you won't like. Um Section four was on how to marry this this woman, you know, how to get her to fall in love with you, how to send her the messages in case there isn't a family involved, etc. Section five was how you should seduce another man's wife, which is a political uh, conversation, apparently, because it says that this is if you are important or if somebody's husband is important, other men will want to seduce her to try and get to the husband's power. Okay. He does finish the, ch the the section by saying, this is how other men can try and seduce your wife, so be careful of that. No, but basically, it's about politics. Section six is on courtesans. This is also a time when sex work was legal. 
It was legalized by Chanakya. There was a ministry for it. There were rules for it. And we're told that the courtesans said, we don't understand most of these rules. Can you make a little chapter on what we're supposed to follow? So there is that. Okay. It's a great social commentary because you understand what was happening at the time. And Section 7 is on love potions and aphrodisiacs. It's a whole load of nonsense. It's totally the stupidest chapter, <laughs> the stupidest thing you will ever come across. But hey, there you have it. So funny. And what are the key lessons from the Karma Sutra that are important that we can apply into our lives? Because there's lots of things that you've mentioned. Uh, that are perhaps not so relevant and perhaps that we wouldn't like. And I guess, you know, a lot of people's excuses now for men being allowed to, you know, interact with so many women and women not being able to interact with so many men is because in the olden day ages, this is what men were taught and we should stick to that because we as men should be able to do certain things and women should not. You know, I just absolutely love how... um People pull out the bits that impact them the most randomly and at the point that it suits them. Correct. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yes, women should stay at home and uh, look after their husbands and be absolutely wonderful wives. Um, oh, yes, women should also earn and, <laughs> you know, provide towards the house expenses. It's just, it's just anyway, hilarious. It's a whole lot of nonsense. But the bit for me that was most interesting in section two, like I said, that's the only relevant section for me, is the way that it approaches the idea of pleasure. And the first thing that strikes you is the vocabulary. It is so utterly beautiful. Really, It refers to the body. I mean, today you think of any part of the female anatomy and it is a cuss word. True. Yeah, this is a time when you're referring to the body in the most exquisite way possible. So the clitoris, which had disappeared from Europe for a very long time. The clitoris in the Kamsutra is referred to as the Madan Chatri, the umbrella of the love god. This is wow. where it all begins. The, the vagina is known as the Chandan Mahal, the sandalwood palace. It is known as the swing of the love god. It is, I mean, it's just... Utterly beautiful. But you know, um, Shivani, so when I started to study the Kam Sutra, there were lots of things that came up. I mean, it talks about how women's pleasure is different to men's pleasure. It talks about how women's pleasure has to be thought of really, really carefully because that's what will take the intimate part of your relationship forward if the woman is fully pleasured. Because when the women aren't fully when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply pleasured. They lose interest. It becomes boring for them. It becomes a chore. They lose interest. You lose out too. So they're trying to encourage men to understand the woman's pleasure. But I'll tell you where I really decided I had to spend more time with the Kam Sutra. It's when I discovered that women were taught how to have sex, how to perform certain positions by wearing different pieces of jewelry and how that jewelry moved on their body. And the very fact that you can create such an exquisite environment for pleasure 
that you actually are talking about not just dry instructions. Mm. You get to this point, you bend at a 45 degree angle, then you grind, then you turn your hips a little bit, then you climb up on top. You, no, they're saying, put on that jingling girdle if you're on top. Make sure the jingling, the bells on it don't jingle when you move. So, yeah, if you were going to be on top, if you look at porn now, mm. you have... Um, you know, if the woman is on top, if you've ever seen any porn, you have the woman bouncing up and down. It's like bounce, 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 you know. And that's supposed to be like the money shot, you know, like, the, well, there are two money shots. There's the money shot where the man ejaculates all over like a great big spray. And I always wondered, like, who exactly is getting pleasure out of that? But that's still the money shot in porn. Right. And the other is if the woman is on top, or in any position, how much bouncing they can show of her, where her breasts are bouncing, she's bouncing, her head is bouncing everywhere. Now, if you're on top and you're bouncing away, you are going to miss every single um, exciting point inside the vagina. You're not going to connect with anything that gives you pleasure. And so the idea was that you put on this jingling girdle around your waist and then you made sure that the bells didn't make a sound. Now, for that, you've got to do this slightly circular grinding motion. That's how you actually connect with your clitoris, with your G-spot, etc. Wow. And then, if you were on top, you wore these long earrings, which were supposed to swing in an arc against your cheek. And once you got the position of your head right so that you could get that swing, you got your pace. How interesting. And I think that it's just so exciting to think, you know, not only did they think it was a good thing that, yes, pleasure is important. Yes, it's good for society. It's good for a couple. It's good for a person. But that it was beautiful. I love that because I think that as women, what you mentioned around the women being pleasured is the most important has been lost in society. Totally. It's all about what the man wants and what the man should have because otherwise he's going to leave you because he'll find someone else. Exactly. But actually the statistic was in a podcast that I think Stephen did, married men cheat the most and single women are the most happy. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. I can't remember what it was exactly but it was like single women are the happiest and married men cheat the most. So um, in the introduction to the Kama Sutra, and the book has been written many, many, rewritten over the centuries many times. So in one of the rewrites, um, the, the introduction, we're told that Vatsan says, well, people are going to say that men have for the longest time uh, had, uh, you know, the ability to come to pleasure really quickly. Why should they now suddenly start spending so much time on pleasuring a woman? Why is it so important? Why would we do it? And he says, you've got to make it aspirational. So he says, well, if you can bring your woman fully to pleasure, your business will do better. And then he explains this whole thing. And he says, if you can bring your woman fully to pleasure, you'll become a better warrior. It's a skill set that's learned. Wow. And so on. So he actually makes it aspirational. I hope everyone's taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting, honestly. I love that, but I also think that what the, the key thing you mentioned there was about vocabulary and the empowerment. So how do we start having conversations where we're empowering women and women feel comfortable to bring these kinds of things up? Because 
a lot of the time, you know, even now, it's still a huge taboo to talk around sex and pleasure. So the thing is that a lot of us think and feel a certain way, but because we never talk about it, we don't know whether everybody's thinking like that. We generally think we're the only ones who are kind of noticing or thinking about it. My entire mission is to actually put this out there so one, people know that they're not the only ones who are thinking about something like this, that it's a general concern or it's a general thought, but also to give people the the vocabulary to talk about it, to mm -hmm. articulate it. Sometimes it's actually an unarticulated thought. It's just there in your head and you haven't been able to bring it out because you don't, it's there in the back of your head, but you don't know it's there. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just really, really important. And I think, you know, I think Pandit Nehru said, this is one of his speeches just before independence. So during the fight for independence. And he says to the women, he says, if you want your rights, you're going to have to fight for them. Because at no point has any oppressor ever said, here are your rights on a silver platter. Here Take you them. Mm. You want some, you will have to fight for your rights. Yeah. And I think that first, before we can even start fighting for our rights, we have to understand what it is that we're seeking, what it is that we want. Even just finding the words to say it out loud. And really, that's all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to break down these barriers between generations. So let's say between a mother and a daughter talking about something by providing vocabulary that is not intimidating, that's not scary. But, you know, just, sorry, just to say, you know, a lot of times um, I find, especially within um, the Western content creators, the vocabulary, because they're trying to reach an audience that is younger mm. and there is certain words being used for certain things. I find that people of my age get really intimidated with those words. You know, they don't want to be discussing sex toys in a particular way. They don't yes. want to be discussing um, certain types of sexual experiences or activities. But something as basic as, I don't feel right when I do this. Mm. That should be the first conversation that they could have with their mom, just to be able to say, um, this doesn't feel right. But how do we move away from anything sexual being dirty? Because pleasure often is considered to be dirty and embarrassing. How, why is it that we think that? How do we move away from that? Because I think that even people, I don't think a lot of people who are my family or friends will click on this podcast because they'll be like, oh my God, disgusting. Yeah. I don't want to hear Shivani talking about it. Gross. Don't want to know anything. And I haven't even mentioned anything about my life. <laughs> um, yeah, I think literally, like I said, baby steps very, very tiny things being put forward where they are not intimidated, where it isn't scary to hear it. I think also it's going to be a long journey. Mm. I think that the younger generation, not just the younger generation, even people of my age, um, it's all going to begin over here. It's when you open up that channel, that little blockage that we've put in our head. You know, pleasure is actually a function of the brain. Sex is a function of the body. Pleasure is intelligence. You've got to have the intelligence to understand what kind of pleasure you're feeling and then deliberately go towards it, right? Wow. There is 
some automatic pleasure that you get, but it has to start from here. The brain has to then send, you know, when it's got excited and all the nerve endings are sort of tingling and pinging out there, it sends messages. We know that no matter what else you do, your brain is sending messages to the rest of your body. We know that for everything else. Mm. We just kind of block this out when it comes to pleasure. So how do we start to unravel that and unpack that? How would somebody at home right now who's struggling to have a conversation around sexual health bring it up with their parents? And why have we also said mum and not dad? So it's funny, isn't it? I actually said this to my intern. So we were writing something. Um, So she was helping me to collate some material. And I came up with this question where this young girl had said to me, my dad is cheating on my mum. So they're three siblings, all very young. I think the oldest being 22. And she said, my dad is cheating on my mom. And I don't know how to deal with this because I don't know whether to tell my mom that's really going to destroy her or whether to not tell her. You know, the the whole conversation was mom. Mm. And I suddenly realized that we put all the onus on the mom Mm -hmm. because we just think that this is the person who is going to be slightly more open to an emotional conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stereotypes. And my intern said to me, oh, but I, so I said to her, what, where would you go first if your parents were in this situation? And she said, I would go to my mom. And I said, why? And she said, because I'm closer to my mom. And I said, no, but what if your mom was cheating? What then? And she said, I would still go to my mom first. So I don't know. It's just how it is. Is it because the fathers haven't stepped forward to create that connection with their kids? I don't know. Mm. But I'm just talking about how we all have conversations and who ends up talking to whom. Mm. And I'm not saying that there aren't fathers out there who are totally open and accepting of what their kids want. And I'm not saying that there aren't mothers out there who are totally closed. I'm talking about in general terms yes um so yeah i am talking about also i think from my own personal experience that my boys won't necessarily come and talk to me about their emotional stuff they'll kind of bring it up in small bits around a subject whereas my daughter and i will discuss these things yes same with me and my mom at more depth yeah um but how you said how do we even start that conversation I think you literally start by talking about your very first fear. I think that parents should talk about, parents and kids should, the first conversation that they should have on sex ed of any kind should be about your emotions and your emotions of rejection. Everybody has this thing about when you're growing up, you get a crush on somebody else. Yeah. The moment you go to your parents or they find out that you have a crush, there's this meltdown. How can you? Anyway, the thing is, parents need to understand that that's a natural thing. Saying to them, you're not allowed to have a crush (laughs) is not going to make any difference. That's going to happen. But more importantly, to to say that, okay, it's very likely that you like this person. They're not going to like you back. Because... We all face rejection. True. Okay. It is. It's just the way it is that 
more than likely, you're going to like them. They probably like somebody else. That person probably likes somebody else. And even if they do like you, you're young enough to not be able to understand how to articulate it back. Just be able to cuddle your child and say, okay, I understand this. Because the moment you understand it, you can then start to put your rules and boundaries to your child. Mm. If you've shut them off, you're not going to be able to tell them what is the right way to behave. So true. Somebody recently came to me. I was doing a talk in Bombay. And this lady said to me, my son is seven years old and he likes bottoms. And she says, he's constantly touching my bottom and saying, I love your bottom. I love bottoms. And she said, what should I do? Now, she was expecting me to say, well, you're not supposed to shame him. So she was ready for that answer. And so I started by saying, now, I know that you're not supposed to shame him and you shouldn't. And she said, yeah, we don't. We don't. We, you know, I said, however, um, you have to teach him about consent. Yes. Because even though you're not shaming him, you can't also say, yes, that's fine. You touch can touch bottom. Yeah. yeah. That is really, really important. Mm. And the lady wasn't really expecting to hear that because, you know, as a young parent, you don't think there's no precedence. Yes. Who said it before you that, you know, well, okay, this is what you do in this situation. Mm. It's really tough for young parents today. Well, the narrative has changed. At first it was don't talk about it. Now it's don't shame your child on anything that they're doing. And so there's one extreme to the other. So what do you do? So that's actually an amazing answer you gave because Uh, she probably wasn't expecting you to say that She wasn't. And she was kind of stunned. And I was like, you know, that is really, really important. And this is why I say don't don't put the barriers up. Talk to your child when they come and talk to you because every family has their own rules or Mm. expectations. If you can talk to them, you can tell them What is the right way to behave according to what you think is right? Yes. If you won't talk to them about it, you cannot put that across. And saying, don't do it, is not going to work. Oh, my gosh. We could talk for hours. There's so much that I need to unpack with you in terms of the conversations that we tell and the stories that we tell. But I think the best thing I've learned today is the stories that we tell ourselves will shape our reality every single day and it's up to us to change that narrative and that story and I think something around sexual health is such a difficult one to do but we can unravel it right we can unravel it the stories that we tell will define us the words that we use will define our actions yes I love that. Well, thank you so much. Honestly, we have to do a part two one day because there's so much knowledge that you have that I need to unpack. But thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. 